you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the podcast where we review the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. I'm Mike Dunlavy, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. This episode we'll be discussing musical selections from Azerbaijan and a piece with a Russian-Swiss-French connection, as well as photos relating to Earth flora from the Golden Record Photo Archive. So let's begin. We're going to begin today by talking about track 15. Track 15 is entitled, according to Murmurs of Earth, Ugam. It runs 2 minutes 30 seconds and was performed by Camille Jalilov and recorded by Radio Moscow. So, where do we start? Well, we can start by discussing whether any of the information given by Murmurs of Earth is accurate. Uh, According to Murmurs of Earth, this is a piece performed on Azerbaijani bagpipes, and there appears to be some controversy about that. So, the source I read on the internet said that this was, in fact, performed on two instruments, balaban. It's a traditional... Azerbaijani reed-like instrument, so it kind of looks like a recorder with a reed in it, uh, which is very much not a bagpipe. It's very much not a bagpipe, and that that coincides with most of everything I wrote. The, the only source that seems to suggest that this is done by bagpipes is Murmurs of Earth, and then, not coincidentally, the NASA website. Everything else lists this as a balaban played by Camille Jalilov and someone else. I think that, I think the idea is that there's two people playing. Right, when Murmurs of Earth says, again, that there's only one performer. And they title it Ugam, when, in fact, I think a more accurate title would be Mugam, which is a style of music, style of folk music from the Azerbaijan region. So they messed up quite a number of things. I think they messed up quite a number of things. Whoa, wait, maybe maybe it's really actually just called Ugam. You know, like, sometimes you you might describe this as a, oh, I don't know, piano work, and you could call it Iano Urk, and that would be its name, not its description. Maybe Ugam is its name. Well, that's a valid point, and we can't discount it entirely. (laughs) (laughs) But you're going to go ahead. But I'm just going to assume that this is another victim of their accelerated time frame, and they perhaps didn't get all the data down as accurately as they hoped. Yeah, so like Hannah was saying, the balaban is a traditional Azerbaijan folk instrument, a cylindrical bore, double reed instrument. Uh, It's about a foot long. And the way that they get it to kind of sound like a bagpipe with that continuous sort of air flowing effect is they use a circular breathing. So they inhale while they're exhaling, which still is a mystery to me how people accomplish that. I was going to ask you to clarify. Are you sure that's not one person inhaling while another person is exhaling oh, when they're playing yeah. simultaneously? Oh, no, no, that's... No, people, that's, people can do this. No, people can't do this. They this can. Oboists and bagpipers do this. And people who blow the conch shell. Can inhale and exhale simultaneously. Mm-hmm. This breaks all laws of. Uh, well, they do something so that their exhale is not broken. I don't know how they do it. I thought, like with a bagpipe, you're filling the bladder, and yeah. so you can blow into it and have air expelled through the yeah, pipes but, at the same time. But there's also air coming back into your lungs at the same time when you're playing the bagpipes. Point of circular breathing is that you're playing an instrument that can back pressure air into your lungs while you are 
blowing into it. This sounds incredibly dangerous to me. Well, of course. <laughs> this sounds like a torture device. The next time you look at an oboe player, <laughs> so think bad. hard about what an incredible musician they are. So they don't inhale at the same time? It's just from the instrument? Well, they're, I mean, they're getting air in. It's circular okay. breathing. Okay. They're getting air in at the same time as they're getting air out. Okay. It is a okay. real thing. Are bagpipe players suffering the same way that people who are listening to bagpipe players are suffering? Is, hey, that, is this what I'm hearing? They're not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not going to abuse bagpipes because we live in Nova Scotia and they'll Scotia. come after us. Small bit of information on Jolly Love, uh, the principal performer on this piece. He was listed on Wikipedia as being widely regarded as one of the greatest folk musicians of all time and was a master of the balaban, the clarinet, the diduk, the zurna, the oboe, and other Azerbaijani folk instruments. And if you look on YouTube, well, as of when we recorded this, there was a documentary on Jolly Love on YouTube. Uh, not in English, but there is lots of footage of him playing many instruments, and it is interesting to see. So, now that we've talked about the controversy, let's talk about the piece. It's stunning. It's really, it really draws you in, I found. It was contemplative. Yeah, very much so. I thought it drew you in. I thought it was quite compelling. It's very lovely. It sounds very contemplative to me. Like, it sounds like a thing you listen to as you're considering the mysteries of life. Yeah, I think this is something you can just sit and listen to it and not do anything else, and you won't get bored. Meditative. Yeah. And sort of Mugam style of music. Things I've read seem to suggest that it has is often has a singing part, but this piece is entirely instrumental. Somebody is playing, well, Camille Jalalov is playing over a, not quite drone, but some sort of undertone played on another instrument. Yeah, I think it's lovely. Agreed. Uh, and, a, and a prime example of a type of music from that part of the world and a type of music that I don't think is duplicated in style from other pieces on the record. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be sending it out there. And if people are interested in learning more about Mugan music, if you go to the Smithsonian Folkways website, they have a documentary that goes very much into detail on the Mugan style. So we said recorded by Radio Moscow, brought to Folkways, I think, by a fellow named Henry Cowell, who is a pianist and composer who, as his career went along, developed an interest in world music and incorporated it into his own compositions. He used the phrase neo-primitive to describe this, which I'm not entirely sure is a great phrase, but I'm sure his heart was in the right place. You can't blame 1970s uh, academics for 1970s academic talk. You probably can, actually, but (laughs) but you you shouldn't blame current academics for... I I have nothing but thanks to Henry Cowell for bringing this piece to the attention of the Golden Record producers, or Folkways, who brought it to the attention of the Golden Record producers, and thus bringing it to our attention. And now, everyone's favorite segment of this podcast, (laughs) Hannah, you wake up on a UFO, (laughs) you hear uh, the Mugam coming down the corridor, how do you feel? Although I love this piece, this is not one I would want to hear on an alien spaceship because I think the drone, not the undertone in the background gives it kind of that ominous feel. Um, and there's a lot of minor or diminished tones going on, uh, which is not, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of more of an ominous feel. And I don't think that's kind of what you want to hear waking up on an alien spaceship. Oh, I would just assume that I was, you know, going to be alone for the next hundred years. Maybe. Which I guess is kind of not a very happy thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you, I mean, if I was waking up on a UFO, I might feel a little agitated. I might feel a little tense. Mm-hmm. And I think the sort of uh, chill quality to this piece uh, might help soothe those things. Maybe. Only one way to find out. <laughs> May I say, I, I do love this segment. 
uh, where we talk about hearing the music on the UFO, but it is kind of funny that we're putting all of this music in terms of not so much we're sending music to aliens and how they'd react, but how we'd react <laughs> if the aliens played this mixtape back to us. Or, well, it's the only frame of reference we have for mixing aliens and humanity and music, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm enjoying it. But, but, that, that, but that, re- that reversal did occur to me recently, and I just thought I would uh, put myself on record. We're now going to move on to talk about selection of photos from the photo archive on the record. We're going to look at pictures 46 through 50, And these are photos showing various types of flora from Earth. Uh, We're going to start with picture 46. Picture 46 is entitled Forest Scene with Mushrooms, taken by Bruce Dale of the National Geographic Society. This photo was sent in color and shows trees, shrubbery, and mushrooms in the foreground. It's not ever clear to me why they choose color or not color, but we don't have to get into that right now. (laughs) Well, well, we we can. And And I'll state right up that of these five photos... 46, 48, 49, and 50 were all sent in color, which is an unusually high percentage of the collections we've looked at. I think it's good that these ones are sent in color. I think it's very important for these images. And like I've printed off black and white images of them, and it's really hard for me, who even knows what I'm looking at, to kind of make out the trees and the shrubbery in just black and white. Yeah, and... I think as they mentioned in Murmurs of Earth at, at some point, a lot of the things that we've been showing, like with plate tectonics and planets and atmospheres, there, there is some perhaps scientific universality of what those things could be. But plants, it's not guaranteed that plants would grow or grow like this on other planets. So I think the color was meant to give as much information as we could about this type of life form. It's got a lot of green in it. <laughs> it does have a lot of green in it, but, but uh, as we get on, we'll see photos with less green. Yeah. And this photo is following on from the desert pictures from the previous section. Like the picture 45 was Monument Valley. So now we're back in the green. And a quote from Murmurs of Earth shows the, quote, ambience of the forest. Hmm, I like that. Uh, moving on now to picture 47, our one black and white photo this episode, entitled Leaf, taken by J. Arthur Herrick, a professor of biological science at Kent State University. And it shows a strawberry leaf uh, with an added length scale. And on that strawberry leaf are droplets, which are not dew, but moisture exuding from the leaf. And again, I think this is a very nice picture. So do I. I'm not sure that the droplets are educational, as you see, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're kind of extra information that's hard to decode. I agree. They say how it is evidence of transpiration. Like, it's, it's evidence of how plants are exchanging with, the, with their environment. But I agree that it would be hard to draw that from the photo. When I first saw it, I assumed it was dew. I'm kind of comforted that it's not condensation because it's in the wrong place for dew. Is it water, though? Is it H2O? It is H2O, yeah. So they have a length scale on here, but I'm just wondering why they couldn't... Because we've already established a nomenclature for water, haven't we? We certainly have established elements, so we could have showed hydrogen and oxygen. I feel like that would be beneficial. Agreed. And maybe show a strawberry as well. Hmm since we were at a strawberry plant. An interesting fact about the photographer, J. Arthur Herrick, uh, lived to be 100. He died in 2008. And he had a home arboretum of over 350 species of trees and shrubs and was named Man of the Year by the Kent Men's Garden Club for his achievements in gardening. Well, what a guy. That's great. Mm-hmm. And his pictures in space. And his seems, pictures in space. Seems like just another accomplishment in a long list. Moving on now to picture 48. 
entitled Fallen Leaves, taken by Jody Cobb of the National Geographic Society. This was also sent in color. So we see now a tree in the autumn with everything having changed to its autumnal amber hues and a woman on the bottom engaged in a huge raking job. So we are seeing trees. I'm not sure why 47 is where it is. But anyway, we see trees in different stages of the year cycle, which I think is kind of an interesting thing because it's a feature of two parts of the earth, the top and the bottom parts. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how clear it is that the things in picture 46, the trees in picture 46, are the same kind of creature as the tree in picture 48. I mean, I know that they're both trees, but (laughs) it's hard to see the trees get in the forest. (laughs) Yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. That was, we've acknowledged that statement. <laughs> we've acknowledged that something happened. Anyway. Hannah, you got anything to yeah, uh, uh, rub me up with? Just the woman raking leaves. I'm not, I'm just curious how that will be interpreted by people who don't know what raking leaves is, what role she's playing in there. Well, so let's, let's throw out some suggestions. Uh, I would say she could be harvesting them for dinner. Could be. I would say that she could be living on the back of a giant lawn creature and she could be responsible for scratching its back. And grooming it. And grooming it. Or maybe she's picking up the leaves to put them on the tree. They oh, go to from put them back. to tree. Right, because <gasps> these, these, these little baby leaves mm-hmm. have fallen out of their nest. She's no, 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 no. They, they grew on the ground. Oh, they grew on the ground and then, oh. and then she tapes plants. them to the leaves. <laughs> and then they go to the leaves. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Hmm. Okay, well. Or she could be beating them with this long stick. These could be naughty leaves. Yes. She could have uh, sprouted that straight from her arm. It could be, uh, you know, like an extended wolverine thing. Mm-hmm. She's part tree folk and... Part extended Wolverine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's made out of wood. She's using a piece of the you tree. You can't tell that. You can't it tell that from that be. photo. This is the 1970s. They didn't have plastic. Everything was wood panel. <laughs> Truly, the OSPs would know that. <laughs> I'll end this by saying, uh, Murmurs of Earth made no mention of the woman. Picture 49 is entitled Sequoia and Snowflake, taken by Robert F. Sisson, of the National Geographic Society, and the inset photo of the snowflake is by Joseph Munch. Uh, It shows a snow-covered sequoia tree with a person in the foreground to give it a sense of scale, and there is an inset of a very nice picture of a single snowflake crystal. With with no sense of scale. With Mm. absolutely no sense of scale. I didn't even see the people in the foreground. I did not realize how large those trees (laughs) were. It's a real big tree. But it looks like the snowflake's bigger than them because there's no scale on it. And given that we've been talking about trees and leaves for so long, I can only assume from this photo that a sequoia tree grows snowflakes yep. as its leaves. Oh, yeah. Big, white, big, white, clumpy snowflakes. Yeah. And the men are down there harvesting the snowflakes as well. Mm-hmm. I do think they make it a good point that the snowflake structure is something that the OSPs could recognize as a frozen water crystal. That One is, would hope, yeah, that, yeah that it's he- a good sign. That sort of natural hexagonal pattern should be universal, and you know, water is, you know, our astronomer can answer this, water is sort of prevalent around the universe? Probably. Yeah, thanks. Some information about the photographer, uh, Mr. Sisson. He was with the National Geographic Society from 1942 to 1988 and was chief national science photographer from 81 to 88. And he won first prize for color photograph at the White House News Photographers Association in 1961. 
And if you look on Google, there's lots of cool photos from this uh, White House press prize thing. There's Kennedy in a really cool suit handing out prizes to guys. But none of those photos would identify Sison, so I couldn't tell which one was him or what photo was the award-winning one. Oh, too bad. Uh, this This is a pretty spectacular photo. I'm made quite nervous by the presence of the two people in the picture because it looks like, you know, if there's a breath of wind all of the snow will fall out of the sequoia onto them and they will be toast. This is probably point. not the case, but makes me nervous. Yep, so like a, like a, an arboreal avalanche. Yeah, just... There's a lot of snow there. And it's got a lot of potential, gravitational potential energy. <laughs> it looks like a significant addition to the mass of the tree. Yeah. Like if you were weighing the tree with its snow weight. Although I guess the tree's probably pretty heavy to start with. None of the previous pictures have needly trees. They don't have evergreens. Do they? I don't think so. Mm. Not to my memory. They make a point in Murmurs of Earth that this photo, again, emphasizes the presence of water. They uh, could have labeled it. They could have labeled it. And uh, we don't. I think it would be interesting to have given the length scale of that tree. And snowflake. Yeah. But they didn't. But they did give a length scale of the tree in the next picture. Speaking of which, the next picture, picture 50, is titled Tree and Daffodils. And it is courtesy of the Henry Francis DuPont Winterthur Museum in Delaware. Uh, Sent in color. I don't think I saw any information on what type of tree it was, but the tree is a post-autumn tree. All of its leaves have dropped, and it is standing in a field of daffodils. It's a spring tree. It's a spring tree, Mike. If it's standing in a field of daffodils, (laughs) it's a spring tree. That's a good point. (laughs) There's no no winter daffodils. (laughs) Uh, but the tree without the leaves, apparently in the spring, does give the OSPs a chance to study uh, branching patterns, mm. uh, which the other photos didn't. So I do think this is uh, scientifically interesting. Uh, with a 14-meter uh, height. And then there's an inset picture of a daffodil. With no length scale, so... And it's not related to the tree. No. Nope. Which makes it... I mean, it would be obvious for the OSPs to compare this picture with the photo preceding it, which has the inset of the snowflake. But those insets are not relating to the same thing. No, but they do both have six-fold symmetry. So for those of us <laughs> who like to have, uh, you know, echoes of the previous picture in the next one. That is alarming. <laughs> I think in the end, I, th- I like all five of these photos. Me too. I mean, obviously, Earth flora is much more varied and interesting than this. But if you're going to send five pictures of trees and leaves, uh, this isn't so bad. So... Are you telling us something about their rating on the threat to humanity scale? I think it's pretty low. I don't think we're giving away anything too uh, dangerous here. I don't know. There's what a... about the crystallization of water? Mm, in the arboreal avalanches, mm-hmm. the AAs. Yeah, the fact that we've got giant, giant life forms on our planet. Well, and that, sh- that should give them pause. They should think twice about coming to our planet mm. filled with such mighty, mighty trees. Well, and by the time they get here, there won't be any left, so... <laughs> That's a sad thing. Plus, we'll all have been wiped out by a fungal disease, so showing them the mushrooms might have been an exciting thing, too. We're now going to move on to track 16. Track 16 is the Sacrificial Dance from the Rite of Spring, composed by Igor Stravinsky. It runs 4 minutes 35 seconds and is performed by the Columbia Symphony Orchestra with Stravinsky himself conducting. And there's quite a lot to, you know, unpack just in choosing something with the title Sacrificial. 
but yeah. do tell us more. Yeah, well, this was written as a ballet for the Ballet Russe. It was first performed in 1913 at the, the Champs-Élysées Theatre in Paris. A sacrificial dance is the final piece of the ballet, and it is meant to play over the chosen one uh, dancing herself to death. Well, welcome to that idea, OSPs. Uh, the synopsis on Wikipedia reads for this part of the ballet, the chosen one dances to death in the presence of the old men, which I think is a great synopsis. <laughs> it's really how everything should end. <laughs> right. Thank you, man. <laughs> some, some fun facts. Uh, after that first performance on May 29th, uh, Stravinsky ate some bad oysters and got really sick. Ah, I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that story about the first performance. Where did performance. you think I was going to go? Well, so there's a lot of rumors swirling around that there were riots in the streets of Paris as a result of this uh, piece premiering. There was a lot of kerfuffle. There was a lot of kerfuffle. I think the general story is people weren't ready for this as a piece of music, especially the choreography, which was done by a fellow named Nijinsky, was very radical for the time, and people got very upset and agitated. There's also evidence that the theater was filled with anti-Russian factions, and people who were also anti-Najinsky and were there to cause trouble no matter what happened. On a wild time. It was a wild time. Yeah. See, I had already sort of thought, well, ballet audiences were probably, you know, ballet premiere audiences were probably different back then they are now. But now I'm imagining them full of wool-hatted conspiracists. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> so the following year, they did a concert performance. Well, what was listed as a concert performance. Meaning which I no assumed, ballet? Yeah, they just played the music with the same conductor. And Stravinsky was carried from the hall shoulder high in triumph. So I think there is some evidence that there was a troublemakers at the first one. And maybe it was the choreography that was exercising people so much. That said, it's quite a challenging piece of music. Yeah, and it, it is very um, intense. He wrote it to be offsetting. You don't you don't have so many accents on crazy beats uh, unless you want your audience to be wondering what the heck is going on. There's a quote I found from an article on the Classic FM website saying, the work was such a violent wrench from every musical tradition that had gone before that. To many people, it seemed like the work of a madman. All right, so that's hyperbole. Stravinsky was living in Switzerland at the time he was writing it. Oh, yeah, you told us that it, this is a Russian, French, Swiss. Yeah, so he, he was born in Russia. He started splitting his time between Russia and Switzerland around 1910 wrote most of this, I believe, at his place in Switzerland, and then they performed it in Paris. He eventually would go on during World War II to the U.S. He would live in Los Angeles. And apparently he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for his contributions to radio. Uh, if you go to 6340 Hollywood Boulevard, outside the Combo's New York Pizzeria and a Juicy Wings franchise, you will find <laughs> Igor Stravinsky's star on the sidewalk. Thank you, Google Street View. <laughs> it's also uh, where the Pantages Theater is. This, uh, also, this classic FM article quoted Stravinsky himself as saying, I was guided by no system whatsoever in Rite of Spring. <laughs> this, is a, this is from an interview in 1961. I had only my ear to help me. I heard and I wrote what I heard. I am the vessel through which the rite passed. Damn. So this is, this is basically his subconscious writ large. It's a little frightening. This is what comes out. <laughs> that, yeah, she dances herself, the chosen one dances herself to death in front of the old men. And to bring up a previous quote, it seems like the work of a madman. <laughs> one other Igor fun fact, in 1944, he did a arrangement of the U.S. National Anthem, which he conducted in New York, and he was threatened with arrest for doing so. Whoa. Was it anything like the rest of his pieces? 
Uh, I have no idea. I couldn't actually find a recording oh, of it. Man. And all threats of arrest were empty. You can't actually arrest someone for playing the national anthem in a way that you find unacceptable. Oh. Apparently, it was radical enough to attract the attention of people who wanted to make their views known. This was 1941. 44. 44. Towards so the after they War. ended the war. Well, towards the end or at the end of the war. But he was a Rusky. He was a Rusky, but he became a U.S. citizen in 45. So Good move. So, Hannah? Hannah. Wait, wait, one more fun fact first. Okay. okay. Uh, he apparently continued to make changes to this piece for 30 years after its premiere. So he was not satisfied with it and kept changing it oh, interesting. for 30 more years. And it I is a long time to work on something. And I don't have the date for when this was recorded. Oh. So we don't actually know what version of The Rite of Spring right. this is from. This piece, Hannah... When you wake up in the UFO, what happens? I, I just, this is the worst thing that could possibly <laughs> happen. <laughs> this is the last thing I want to hear on an alien spaceship. Stravinsky stresses me out. <laughs> I mean, at, at the risk of demeaning his work, this is the kind of music one might hear played when Klingons are attacking. Yes, that, yeah. To, to give the listener a sense, if, assuming the listener, any listener who's... But it's even worse, it's like... Zombie clown Klingons or something. <laughs> okay, that's, guess, that's trademark is... Earth's mixtape. I don't care what Paramount says, that idea is ours. <laughs> this is just the worst nightmarish, nightmarish piece. I do not enjoy listening to it. I, it, it scares me a lot. <laughs> so if you were to wake up in front of a bunch of old men... <laughs> I'd be forced to dance myself to death you would as find, the chosen you, one. You would find that negative. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but what if you woke up... In a group of old men, and there was a, a chosen one dancing before Probably you. Probably even would more you, stressful. Yeah, see, yeah, I would but you wouldn't feel. leap in to rescue? Oh, yeah. It's the chosen one. You gotta, you gotta do your part. Absolutely. Roby, <laughs> would you? What, leap in to rescue the chosen one? Yeah. Probably. I don't know if what you you're talking about. I wish she was on an alien spaceship with you. <laughs> Criminy. We're, we're, we're exploring a lot of hypotheticals this episode, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of digging it. I personally, it would not take as many minutes as this piece lasts for me to dance myself to death. <laughs> I'm not that fit. <laughs> oh, so, okay, interesting, interesting. It's four minutes, you got four minutes and 35 seconds. Could you dance yourself to death in that time? <laughs> Could I personally? Well, probably. Like I said, I'm not that fit. I think this justifies some uh, some Dijinsky's choice of a radical choreography. If you if you have to someone believably dance themselves to death in four minutes and thirty five seconds, you gotta at least do some handstands. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, plus we, we're probably dealing with an actual dancer who probably can dance for four minutes without, uh, you know, and thirty five seconds. And plus the whole thing, probably probably an actual dancer can dance for like ten minutes without getting even out of breath okay so uh yeah it's gonna be I it's gonna have to be some pretty serious dancing certainly if i tried to run full out for four minutes and 30 35 seconds i'd be dead at two and a half <laughs> i think i died just from a heart attack upon hearing the opening <laughs> note of this piece especially if there were old men watching <laughs> so we so we have intense music radical choreography four minutes 35 seconds you think you could do it you think you could go oh to death. i could i'd be gone in for 10 seconds I'd be gone immediately. Um, so we were talking a while ago on how there's a no bummer rule on the on the pod on the um, oh from on the, the record from, for the images for the images. That's right. Yeah. Is there not a no bummer rule for the music? Because this piece no. really bums me out. There is not a no bummer piece. This is a this is a piece about a woman dancing herself to death for the pleasure of old men. <laughs> you so, don't know if it's their pleasure. It might be. She might. It. This might be. 
an allegory for, you know, seeds or, or beer making. It could be anything. The rite of spring. Yeah. Generally a time of life and renewal. Right. But, only, but for old men. But <laughs> not so Who much. Who are renewed by the death of a young woman. <laughs> they this feed is more, off her life force. It's a sacrificial dance. This is a, this is a woman sacrificing herself for the, for the greater whole. So the thing about the bummer rule is we already sent a song saying, oppress us as much as you want. Right. As well as a queen of the night imploring her daughter to kill someone. That's right. And the, and the, the oppress us as much as you want still had a note of will survive. We'll take that. We'll, we, you, you can oppress us all you want. We, we will be strong. We still have our pistol knives. <laughs> we still have our pistol knives. <laughs> With which to fight off the Klingon zombie clowns. So, but what makes the music different from the photographs? Why have a no bummer rule on the photographs, but not on the well, music? It's, you, I mean, the photo of two people killing each other or a starving child is more obvious that there's something, there's a bummer happening than there is in this piece of music. Right. Nobody's, but the people chose, choosing it knew what was happening in this music. Yes. And it's, yeah, and if, you're, if we're trying to give a emotional, artistic landscape of humanity by sending the music in the first place, we are sending an emotional landscape based around sacrifice and violence and death. Yeah, and it, although this piece most definitely touches our hearts, it doesn't, like... In the form of a heart us, attack. Yeah, uh, this isn't, like, happy whistle-along music. I'm not questioning Stravinsky's artistic vision being realized, but whether this is an appropriate contribution to the record. I got nothing to add to that. Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.